best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Special installment of Blue SciCon, Blue Marble Space Science Conversations. We are live at the Astrobiology Science Conference with everybody here. Everybody say hi. hi. So, if you're listening to this podcast and you're one of our essay contest entrants, we hope that this will be useful to you in thinking about the future exploration of the inner solar system. Uh, if this is the first time you've heard about our institute, we are the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. You can check us out online at bmsas.org. This is our monthly podcast series. It features the ideas, philosophies, and research of members of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Uh, previous episodes of our podcast are available at bmsas.org slash podcast. And now in keeping with our tradition in introducing a tasty beverage at the beginning, Palmer. What is one of your favorite beers or wines that you've encountered recently? Uh, I really like the Ballast Point Sculpin IPA. It's out uh, of San Diego. It's delicious all over California. It's probably my favorite one right now. Wonderful. Alright, let's get a wine. Who's got a good wine they discovered recently? I like Wild Hog Pinot Noir from uh, Sarah Lee's Vineyards, north of Napa Valley, uh, California. Alright. Alright, and then how about a whiskey? <laughs> No, no whiskey drinkers here. Highland Park. Highland Park. I just tried this. It was pretty good. Oh, great. Yeah. Is it smoky or? No, not smoky. PT? Yeah. It was, it was pretty good though. It was 16 years. I think I tried 16. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Some fancy whiskey there. Okay, so um, the, the purpose of this discussion is to get us thinking about what are the targets for the near future human exploration of the inner solar system? And specifically what I think we should talk about is Mercury, Venus, the Moon, and the asteroids. Specifically because Mars gets all the attention. We know <laughs> a lot about Mars. Everybody's interested in Mars. There's SpaceX, there's Inspiration Mars Foundation, and uh, Mars One. I'm personally a little skeptical that they're going to meet their goals of getting to Mars in the next 10 to 20 years but there's a lot of interest in Mars. And so I think we'll just take Mars as, you know, leave it as written. I think we should focus on maybe some of the reasons to visit some of these other bodies. So the asteroids might be a good place to start. One thing that I encountered when I was an undergraduate student is this concept that the asteroids are really rich in metals and precious metals. There's a lot of gold, a lot of iridium, osmium, platinum, other things like this. So the asteroids potentially are an economically viable way of getting a return on investment in your space exploration. So there have been some companies that have looked at asteroid mining. It's very expensive. But are there any, you know, any, anyone have any thoughts as to the, the suitability of asteroids as, as a target? Like what would that look like in terms of you know, NASA or private industry to actually go after an asteroid? Is this something we should be doing? Is this something on our horizon? Does this make sense? I think the baby had a strong opinion. <laughs> Mind the asteroids and pay for future college. <laughs> I guess I can start with thinking that, you know, asteroids tend to be a, a good first step to kind of build our confidence about how humans can live in space beyond low Earth orbit, but not be too far away from home. And if something happens, there's 
maybe a small chance that it could survive it. Going to another planet is ambitious, it's hard to do. I think we're not there yet. An asteroid seems like a safe first step. What, what did we learn from landing on asteroids that we cannot learn from planets or vice versa? I think it's just a new environment. Like, And we've, do, we've done the moon, but frankly, the I don't think we've done it recently enough that that knowledge <coughs> is transferable. Um, even the rocket technology is from back then is no longer reproducible. And so it's just a very different time, I think, for NASA in the fact that it is much more risk averse, much more afraid of risky ventures compared to when the Apollo days were up. And so it's a very different way of organizing missions. And I think asteroids is probably simpler than going to the moon. <laughs> just from a perspective as astrologist, um, and you know, understanding life in the universe, I think that asteroids make sense for a lot of reasons. I think that they make sense because asteroid mining is going to happen anyway. They're going to start with kind of your volatile resources, but then they're going to start looking at heavy metal mining and trying to get other resources out of there. And what asteroids, learning how to mine an asteroid is going to teach us is how do we mine a body that hasn't had life chewing on it for a billion years and concentrating some of those resources for us to make it easier for us to get them. An asteroid doesn't have that. Believe it or not, I think that mining here on Earth has been made easy by life already doing concentrating of, you know, gold ore and all the other, you know, metal ores and things like that. An asteroid doesn't have that, so that gives us an opportunity to... Yes, honey, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, that's my son. Um, the asteroids give us an opportunity to explore what is it going to be like to do, to be able to mine a resource that doesn't have life on to find those resources and what other technology are we going to have to include in the process. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> That's really interesting. So, so thinking about risk in asteroids, there's this mission, and somebody probably knows the name of the mission, I forget, to capture an asteroid uh, and park it in orbit near the moon, where then we would have easier access to send astronauts up there. Is this risky? I mean, it seems like the answer is yes to me, but I don't know. I mean, bringing an asteroid fairly far distance, do we have the ability to park it safely here? Are we going to cause any more problems for ourselves, or is this nothing to worry about? It's really fine. That's what I was going to comment on was that mission of lassoing the, the asteroid in. And the wording that they use in, I won't say propaganda, but their, their press releases, was that it's going to be just as safe, just kind of like use for the Santa Barbara oil rigs, like all the oil rigs off the coast, and we can see what happens with that. As um, safe as an oil rig, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And then they figured out that at first leak, you know, nothing would happen again, and you had this other leak in Florida, they're trying to do oil rigs all over our coast. So when you had that thing in, in orbit, you know, anything piece could fall off and pump itself into a major city. So you think it's feasible to weaponize technology to asteroids in the orbit? So you'd be worried about the weaponization possibilities of asteroids? Yeah, yeah of, of that kind of technology to move something into low Earth orbit that's that massive. That's We're at a point where we can hack into a 747 from sitting, like, even sitting in the plane, right. changing the altitude and doing whatever the heck you want. You might not be able to hack into whatever's controlling the orbit structure of that asteroid. Then again, the fear of weaponizing a technology I don't think should stop us from developing it because otherwise we wouldn't be where we are now. Everything can be weaponized, sure, but hopefully by the time we get to that technology, the human race, at least a good chunk of it, will have moved That's past that, hopefully. And Not sometimes sure, we as scientists de-weaponize technology. We take things like radar yeah. and say, hey, you can yeah. bother with this. <laughs> yeah. and the, cool, the cool fact of having, being able to 
have an asteroid that you can access would be that you could use it sort of as a test place to try technology for example to drill on another planet without contaminating it there you don't really have to worry because there's nothing to contaminate and at the very least uh, you tried first somewhere where you're not going to mess up the whole planet i was going to say that yeah there's a flip side to the economic model where if you take into account the full life cycle of extracting minerals and downstream effects of health and environmental destruction and if the economic models actually incorporated that into it there might be a, a much stronger economic case to be made for it if it was comprehensive and if it was on a level playing field. Right. Now, the other flip side of the economic argument I've heard is that you can saturate the market for platinum and osmium because they're expensive on Earth because they're rare. And oh, it's minerals, minerals, you know, rare yeah. minerals that are exactly. semiconductors. There's going to be increased demand for that kind of thing. So right. I can only anticipate that the return on investment will go higher and higher and higher right. as you get closer and closer to and then maybe we're not taking the resources and bringing them back to Earth. Maybe we leave them in space and use them to build space technology. So how about the moon? The moon seems to be neglected other than as a, a, a stepping stone on the way to Mars. Do, do we care about going back to the moon? Or is, is this a political issue or are there scientific reasons to go to the moon? I think there are huge scientific reasons to go back to the moon. We, I mean, we went there decades ago and it, it was amazing at the time, but how much more can we do now that we couldn't do back then? How much more can we understand simply of how Earth, uh, the whole Earth system, how it became habitable just from understanding how the moon got into the place where it is now? I mean, it's it's huge what we can learn. So do you foresee the moon kind of like an Antarctica? Will you write a proposal? Exactly. That would be pretty cool. I imagine there's China that's word on the street is they're trying to mine helium three then to bring that back onto Earth for fusion processes. So like one space shuttle load volume of helium three will be enough to power the entire world for a year. Wow. So that's one thing that they're trying to Bob Shapiro is uh he passed away some years ago, but he was part of the astrobiology community and an origin of life researcher and he actually suggested an idea similar to what you did that putting a base on the moon and it would be a not no uh, there would be no permanent staff. It would be rotating scientists, postdocs, grad students, and PIs, and people <laughs> that come and you do a five year tour of the moon. Um, and then the facility would also be a backup, so that you could put important data there, maybe cultural artifacts, just in case something happened on Earth. Then you would have a staffed offsite facility. Or if there is a war on Earth and you need to help redirect. You know, but yeah, at the, the core of that model was sort of a rotating staff of scientists and administrators, which could be an interesting idea. It's almost an insurance policy against the craziness of the human species. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, lo I love the idea of making a seed bank or a gene bank on the moon. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. When the way I know you said we're not talking about Mars, but I heard this this great uh, great way of thinking about the Mars Human Exploration Program as an effort to build a, a permanent robotic base that humans occasionally visit. <laughs> and we could think of, I mean, you could test that concept on the moon, and maybe it is permanently occupied by humans, but maybe at, at one level higher, it's really a robotic base right. that, that right. subsists on its own robotically, and humans, you know, take from it and, uh, and maintain it once more. It's always the gaming technology. You could almost imagine that we, you're controlling a robot on the moon from living room, you know, like doing your science. Yeah. That's kind of what we do yeah. with the Mars rovers, right? So yeah. It's true. Yeah, it's the next version of that, I guess. Uh, 
I, I like the idea of having robots to build things on the moon, to do the construction of building bases, but when it comes to the science, there's something that a human can do that you just can't do with the robots. That's very good. And putting a person there, especially someone trained to know what they're looking for, is going to be a really important thing that happens. So, I mean, we sent a lot of people to the moon, right? Uh, in the Apollo mission, only one of them was a geologist and brought back the good samples. Um, <laughs> so it's unfortunate. Like, we didn't get a chance to send more geologists, people who actually knew what to look for on the moon. So I think it'd be cool to have robots building all the infrastructure, but then have people out doing really cool surveying and exploring. So considering the whole importance, are there active efforts currently that uh, aims to take humans to moon? Or is it just politically restricted? I believe China is trying to send people to the moon. I'm not sure where the U.S. stands on that now. I think it depends on who the president is. It changes with the administration. I mean, yeah. there was a, you know, back in the Bush administration, there was a return to moon initiative that in the Obama administration kind of got downsized significantly, and the focus became basically replacing the shuttle. So it's still an effort that's out there and people are still thinking about it and they're still working on it, but they're looking at it as kind of a stepping stone to Mars. So there's still like return to the moon, sort of kind of under the, you know, we kind of play it as, oh, we'll do that on our way to Mars. But the focus in the administration is Mars. There are still people who would like to go back to the moon and, and you know, it's, it's still alive, just not as uh, forward in the agency's mind as it used to be. My sense of it is that it shifted from uh, away from the moon as a stepping stone to Mars uh, and to the asteroid mission uh, as as the first exploration of deep space and going further. And it's partly political, it's partly, you know, the national pride aspect of that. We've already been on the moon, so let China go put people on the moon. We're going further. <laughs> right. But there's the, the there's pure practical technological aspect of that decision, which is that going to the moon doesn't necessarily help us that much. It, the ability to get to Mars, we need to get further, right. uh, like Sanko is saying. But um, it really is clearly about Mars. Maybe even not just Mars, but I, I think with the American public, maybe even the public in general across the planet, right now the moon, and even in, in, if the administration announced this NEO project, people weren't excited about it. it it's not sexy for people. Yeah, that's they, don't, they don't want to go to the moon or to NEOs, they want to go to Venus or Mars. Yeah. You know? Well, let's talk about Venus. It's actually what I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we go further from the sun? We should go where it's warmer, right? So, now, Venus, obviously, is, is not a pleasant place to stand on, but if you go 50 kilometers above the surface, air is a lifting gas. You can build a floating city uh, 50 kilometers above, above Venus. Bring your air in. You would need to wear a protective suit to protect against the uh, sulfuric acid rain. But other than that... Uh, 50 kilometers in the cloud deck above the surface is one of the most Earth-like locations in the solar system. What's uh, the pressure up there? Is it also It's a bar. It's a bar. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you can open your windows if, you had, if you're properly... That's right. It. That's right. So, yeah, there's a paper by some crazy guy you can find about building floating cities and bars if you want some you know, fun reading. Maybe there's other reasons to go to Venus, too, though. It seems like Russia is a little more interested in that than the Earth. I don't know if that's because we've been to Venus and it's old half, but... Um, the other thing I wonder about Venus, and if anyone else has thoughts on, is you know Venus would be, you know, probably almost a better candidate of having been like Earth in the past. You know, we talk about Mars, maybe Mars was wet, warm, had an ocean, maybe life started Mars. Sure, that could all be, but you know Venus was closer to the sun, and it looks like it went through a runaway greenhouse. Did Venus have full oceans with their life, were there astronomers watching the sun get brighter, and, you know, and then they couldn't get off the planet, so they died, like. Maybe not that extreme, <laughs> but, <laughs> but even so, like, what if there, what if Venus has 
an example of the second genesis of life and maybe maybe we could never directly detect it. Maybe we should be exploring. I think three and a half billion years ago, if I had been an alien creature coming to this solar system, I think there'd been two worlds that would have been really interesting to check out. Earth would be one, I think Venus would have been the other one. I've argued for a long time that Venus is far more likely to have life than Mars in the early solar system. So and yeah, we had the crustal overturn happen um, correct me if I'm wrong, 500 million or so years ago. Um, but there are, there are several geologists out there who've argued that there could still be some old rocks. We just have to get to Venus and start exploring and building spacecraft that can withstand that, that surface environment to actually try to find some of these ancient rocks. And so I think Venus missions are really cool because of that. And from what you said there, from a technological standpoint, it seems like there'd be a lot to gain industry-wise. If you have to build a spacecraft that's to withstand those types of immense you know, temperatures and pressures, you might, you know, space exploration doesn't directly give you a return on investment by landing on Venus, but you do get all this auxiliary technology, and maybe instead of trying to explore these cold, low-pressure environments, we should try to explore high-pressure environments. We know how to handle pressure. Right. We've been exploring the bottom of the oceans, which are much higher pressure than the Venus. Temperature is a problem. And how do you do temperature and pressure together well, in terms of the, the benefits to industry, I think it would be huge. My mind is going to the movie The Core as a geologist, I should not admit that. <laughs> but, yeah, my mind is going to crazy directions, right? That's okay, but it is. But in terms of, like, you could presumably build a probe and drop it in a volcano and see what happens, withstand the pressures and temperature. Right. You know, that would be interesting. Well, that's not so different than what happened with uh, Cassini and the Huygens probe. You wanted to know what it was like what it was like on the surface of Titan. So you didn't design a probe that was going to last for tens of years. It just you dropped it down, you took an atmospheric reading, reached the surface, took some measurements, and then the probe doesn't work anymore. That could be okay. All right. So how about Mercury? Like the probably the least popular kid on the block. <laughs> there, there was water found in Mercury. Care about Mercury anymore? Messenger is there. Um, what, what's interesting about Mercury? I'm, I'm really kind of asking personally because I'm not. <laughs> I mean, there, there's some interesting, uh, you know, orbital dynamics with Mercury. I think it's the, the test of relativity that succeeded. But do we need to spend money on exploring Mercury at this point? Although I, I wouldn't argue for funding this um, to waste money on it, but if we could get a sample return from Mercury and bring some of the rocks back, right now all of our dating of, of rocky material in our solar system is based on the dates we have from the Moon from cratering rates uh, in the past on the moon and from the rocks we brought back and have studied. If we could get some similar rocks and date them from Mercury and then have that to compare it to the Mercury's cratering record, it'd be really cool to see how these models we've been using for years actually stand up to the test. So that'd be one interesting thing to see. On the kind of sci-fi side, you could imagine Mercury as being analogous to what Australia was, where you send all the prisoners and, <laughs> and uh, they'll kind of rise of you. A new type of social Darwinism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Isn't there, there's a short story, I don't know, maybe it's Arthur C. Clarke, where there's actually a, a kind of maglev track around the planet, and there's a, a kind of a city that kind of moves with the, with the, the, the light rim of the planet, so you're always at the right temperature, and I think the thing breaks down, and the, those four colonists, are, they, they can see the sun coming in, and they know that in a few hours they're going to die. So, yeah, it's a short story, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but it just, it puts into perspective, like, the, the challenges of what it takes to stay alive on different worlds changes incredibly depending on the world, right? So, but human nature tends to be this 
even if it's dangerous, we'll go. <laughs> you know, so I, yeah. it, I have little doubt, frankly, that even two hundred as early as two hundred years from now, we will be going back to Venus, going back to Mercury, going to Mercury, <laughs> going to these really exciting places. I think because they're dangerous, it's a very human thing to do. Well, yeah, that ties in with where I was going next. So, <laughs> what's your what's your two hundred year vision? Like, so we talked about you know the different bodies, and you can include Mars in this if you want now. Um, like, how would you prioritize? Because 200 years is a long time, but not really that long. And, you know, we can maybe guess that funding isn't going to drastically change. You know, for the sake of argument, we can assume that there will be money for space missions. But the whole world is all of a sudden going to give all its billions of dollars of extra money to, you know, space missions. So, staying steady and about what's reasonable now, what would be uh, your vision? Is that under the assumption that the Earth stays the way it is now? <laughs> they don't take into account climate warming effects on Let's assume stress. that we have successfully mitigated climate change. What would be the priority of humanity? For space, exploration. for space exploration. I think it will be hard to change the inertia we have now towards Mars. Mars is tangible, Mars is recognizable, yet it has a lot of rock history that we know how to interpret, there's a lot of existing data that we can verify. I know this not where the direction is going, kind of, but Mars has kind of this allure, guys. it looks like home, kind of, and there's signs of water, there's signs of types of rock that could perhaps say something about life, you know, and at the end of the day, that's what we're after, right? So how soon do we get to Mars, and then what do we do after that? Like, are we, is it going to take us 200 years to get to Mars? Or, because, so, so SpaceX is planning on being at Mars in the 2030s. Let's say it's the 2050s when they get there, 2060s. That still only is 50 years from now. So, if by the end of this, you know, the next 100 years, we have a small colony at Mars, so where do we go from there? Joaquin Martin claims that they've solved the cold fusion problem. So, propulsion that would change things substantially. But yeah, where do we go from there? Once we're on Mars, what do we do? Like, is the goal to have a, you know, you could, you could have the scientific oasis like we talked about, where there's a Martian base that has astronauts and scientists on it and rotating. Um, but a lot of people want to settle Mars. They want a city. And that's, I think, what a lot of people in the public want. They want to be, have people that are born on Mars as Martian citizens and live there and have trade with Earth, getting into the Star Trek kind of interplanetaries. I think there's some people that want that, but... Is that where we should be going in the 200 years, or is that maybe a much longer-term goal, and maybe in 200 years, that's not so realistic? But we have so much to learn about Mars. I mean, we think, you know, it's not just getting there, getting human on the surface, even building a city. I mean, you learn almost nothing about the planet uh, as a system. I mean, if you look at how uh, Earth science has evolved over the last 200 years, I mean, 200 years ago, basically just starting to scratch the surface of the geologic time scale, honestly, and, uh, and not even really that. We haven't even gotten there yet, but that's basically where we are with Mars at this point. And so expanding, being able to basically routinely be able to send geologists back and forth uh, to Mars and get at different places on the surface, and just from a scientific perspective, to start to understand the history of that planet as a system. In a way that approaches what the understanding we have now about Earth. 
I don't want to like throw a blanket on everything, but as far as the next 200 years go, I'm a little bit skeptical as to how far we're really going to get because I hang out with a historian of science fairly frequently, and he talks a lot about the 1950s and the 1960s as being this time when the future was really in vogue and Tomorrowland was both at Disneyland. They had these world fairs are always talking about how far we were going to get with space exploration. They made it to the moon, and then the Cold War ended. And we really haven't gone anywhere since then. I mean, let's look at We sent to Rovers Mars a couple times. Like, we really haven't done that much. And increasingly, as our environmental problems get worse and worse, and our planet is warming, and we're destroying rainforests and so on, I really think that our gaze is going to be increasingly turning inward. And I think less and less emphasis is going to be put on moving beyond. At least that's kind of where I see things from this perspective of perspectives. Sure. And to follow up on that, you know, I started I started working at NASA, you know, doing research as a student when I was 19 years old. When I was 19 years old, you know, they were saying, oh, we're going to go to Mars in 30 years. That was 20 years ago. And we're still saying we're going to go to Mars in 30 years. So I, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to realistically, you know, I don't know have a lot of hope for what we're realistically going to do as governments. But I think, you're, you know, you were saying, you know, before we start doing this full-scale, you know, population of Mars and people just going there and wanting to live there and starting their own Martian society, you know, it's going to happen whether we, we, we want it to or not. So I... What I see is, I, I don't know if we're going to get there to do the core science we want to do, but I do think we're going to get there in 200 years because there's enough individual drive, you know, collectively where people want to get to Mars. So somebody's going to get there probably on, on a private dime or another government. So it's going to happen, you know, and but it may not happen exactly the way that we want it to. But I think it is going to happen. I think we are going to get to Mars. I think we, but I think it's going to be a lot of different efforts. I don't think it's going to be one coordinated effort so that we can get that really smooth, coordinated science building upon science building upon science that we want i think it's going to be haphazard i think it's going to be a lot of different efforts but i think that that we are going to see um you know regular population you know population and regular visits to us but i don't think it's going to be any perfect vision that we're seeing and i don't necessarily see it happening in 30 years so how do you see the uh, interplay between private and and government space exploration and do you think that private industry may overtake national government programs, at least to some extent. In this effort, yes. I think private's going to, I think private will probably at least get the ball rolling better than government will, and then I think once government sees the support, then they'll jump on the back. That's what I see. If private industry has to answer to shareholders, and shareholders are in support of space exploration, if the public opinion as a whole is behind space exploration, I think that private industries are going to be great. Yes. But until that happens, and basic science is seen as being worthy just because it's science. So do you think, to follow up on that, could basic science suffer at the success of private industry? I can see that. I could see that happening. A little bit. I think it... I mean, it could go either way. You could see that happening, but... I think probably everybody in this room has had the, the questions like, how does that apply to the real world? Right. Exactly. And then you have to, and that's that's always going to be a question, especially if you have to answer to shareholders. Right. right. And Mars one could end up being essentially MTV's real world on Mars, where people are opening the capsule and just contaminating. Right. Yeah, we didn't even get into planetary protection. Will profit dump ethics? Not dump. Trump. I think right now it's hard because there's not a lot of obvious profit to be had in space exploration, but once you get to Mars and you start digging and you realize there's all of 
this mineral, whatever it is, that you can make a bunch of money on, that's going to be a big issue. And I don't think there's actually an answer on what happens with that because of the way international treaties are. It's unclear actually who owns that sort of space resources. I think that's an open question. That's, where, that's something where we unfortunately need more lawyers doing space policy. That's exactly right. Because to answer that question, it's going to take the lawyers. That's right. So space exploration is not about technology only, right? There's space exploration involves law and ethics as well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a lot more optimistic, I think. I mean, I've said a lot of time of working on basically the first part of Mars sample return now in 2020. It's hard for me to imagine Mars sample return coming to fruition without an intimate partnership with the human program, uh, potentially humans being the third mission uh, to retrieve the samples, being the first uh, uh, human orbit to bring the samples back out of orbit as one pathway. And then on top of that, it's hard for me to imagine a successful human program, Mars exploration, without an intimate partnership with industry, just because of the efficiency we see with SpaceX relative to SLS. And I'm really actually very optimistic that that, that public-private partnership will enable basic science because I see SpaceX, at least the way they state their vision, is, is about getting to Mars, and, and it's a philosophical thing. It's, a, it's not directly because we want to send a human there to bring back something that we can then sell other than image and reputation and to enable investment. You know, yeah, long-term, with asteroid mining, get you know, private industry wanting to learn how to do space exploration independent of governments to some extent. But that that's I, I do see that on a sort of multi-century time scale, and along the way, there will be a lot of benefits partnerships with governments. And in terms of basic science and suffering, yes, probably maybe, but at the same time, it's kind of the same thing that is happening now. I mean, how many times biologists that need to access hyperthermophiles, they piggyback on, you know, someone that is interested in oil or something else, and while the industry is doing whatever they want to do, the scientist gets basically the little bit of samples that they need. I mean, there are ways of working yeah. it out. Well, we're, we're, seeing that, we're seeing that in space now with, um, with Virgin Galactic. With the Virgin Galactic suborbital sites, they're actually doing science leveraging of the commercial space flights. They're planning that and they're building that into the Virgin Galactic model so that, you know, we get this commercial space industry where people are space tourists, but then scientists get, you know, scientists get, scientists get this upper atmosphere suborbital research done as well. So I think it's more synergistic than actually hurting because at the beginning science, I mean, with the funding, assuming that the funding stays more or less as it is, which is probably not going to change anytime soon, science doesn't have the ability by itself to, you know, go to Mars or go to an asteroid. We need the private industry at this point, and so, hey, yeah, I think sure. it's the same, like, I bet you can always be turned into biological, because I was thinking about that, how, you know, the, the private industry got into medicine, and I think in the beginning that was scary, too. After all, like, we trust to private industry with our health. You know, we, we, they are there, I think, they, they get to going, even though I think we want to believe that it's scientific exploration, but it really isn't, I think. So I, I don't see, I also have an optimistic camp that I think uh, it's going to, it's going to, all right. Well, this has been a great conversation. Does anybody have any closing thoughts? Your favorite targets or your Venus is hot. And Europa just came in. So. <laughs> Europa's here. Europa's in the outer uh, solar system. <laughs> if you're one of our essay contestants, uh, you do not need to emphasize Venus unless you want to. <laughs> sure. Um, but thank you, everybody, for joining us. This has been Blue PsyCon and AppSciCon. Everybody say bye. Bye. Bye.
Thanks for joining us. You can email us at podcast at bmss.org. Send us your feedback. Tell us what you love. Tell us what you hate. Tell us your favorite beverages. We will feature them on our show. <laughs> you can check us out online at bmss.org slash podcast. We'll see you again next time. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.